Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Good morning, one and all. You may have joined us on FM Digital, online or via the Triple R app, or you're sometime in the future listening back to us on the podcast. However you're listening, it's great to have us have you lend an ear, maybe even both of them, as we bring you another hour of all things health and well-being. I'm not in the studio alone. I'm joined this morning by Dr. Sharma. Good morning, Dr. Sharma. Good morning to you, and uh, particularly good morning with the uh, change in our clocks as well as season, as you were mentioning. <laughs> I, I, I missed it. Really? I was in here at Sparrow's Fart. <laughs> <laughs> I would have missed it if it wasn't uh, like a, a tweet I saw late last night, because you know, with with the with the automatic updates on the phones, I've just yeah. Just forgot about it. Well, this is why I'm even beating myself up even more than I normally tend to do, is because I woke up and I looked at my phone. Yeah. And I was I, I got up to get a glass of water, and I looked at uh, my phone, and it had obviously changed. But <laughs> who does this? I trusted the oven clock. <laughs> the clock on the oven. So I went, what's happened? What's happened with the oven? You know, what's happened with the <laughs> Phone. The phone's wrong. It's the 30-year-old oven's right. <laughs> I love it. A lot of faith you have in our kitchen appliances. Yeah, yeah. it's not like I haven't been through a change of the clocks before either, right? <laughs> um, hey, we're, uh, we're, we're down a crew. Yes, we are. Uh, Neonatal is out and about running, uh, uh, doing a fun run this morning, I understand. He's running for the kids. Oh. The annual fundraiser fun run for Children's Hospital. And uh, he's uh, pounding the pavement. Although I think, if I'm right, I think it was start of about 8.30. So hopefully he's finished. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or oh, it's an extremely long run. He's very committed. <laughs> he's very uh, committed. To those children. Yeah, yeah. Our future paediatrician. Yeah. Good on him too. Um, I gather they haven't obviously been able to um, run it uh, the last couple of uh, years. I think even though April was that sweet spot last year, wasn't it? We were all out and about last April, weren't we? Yeah, we were. Uh, but... You know, I think a lot of us were still quite tentative around that time, weren't we? Yeah. Not tentative now. What are your observations? Oh, my goodness. I mean, the uh, the, the big COVID story is the how COVID is not a story. Really. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, just the way where we're all kind of gotten back to, to things as usual. And this is not a criticism at all. Sure. This is happening in the face of you know, the biggest upswing I think we've had in terms of numbers of COVID. Yeah. Ever really? Yeah, it's quite it's something. Pretty epic, but you know, people are vaccinated and getting boosted at record pace. It's yeah. going all right on that front, but who knows what's next, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I, I've been experiencing this kind of um, to and fro of being optimistic and a little bit wary. In that, my optimism is coming from my little canary in the mine. Um, is the students that I, mm. I I teach, right? And I remember updating you guys a few times about just how many students were applying for some kind of uh, extension on assignments or um, absenteeism related to mental health and just really struggling with the whole shebang and all of that. The good news is that that, that number has dipped a whole lot. Right. You know, so I've just had a period of um, uh, due dates, <laughs> and um, this time last year, 
Oh, it was extraordinary how many people were, were submitting late because they just needed extra time to just gather their thoughts, just um, get themselves together. No, um, back to almost normal, I would say, uh, which is a great sign. It's really it's, it's a fun sign. The downside is that every, I'm back on campus and I'm loving that, but I feel like I'm dodging bullets the whole time. Um, like, when's it, go, when's it my turn? <laughs> I haven't had it at all yet, and I haven't even been um, a close contact yet. But everyone around me just me seems either. to. Oh, I have not had it yet either. But you know, the, the interesting thing, and I was having this discussion with a few people online um, this week, was that sense of eventually it's going to get me right. Yeah. Well, maybe eventually, long term in the future, but uh, the what we call the secondary uh, household attack rate of COVID is actually quite low now yeah. because of the high levels of vaccination. If you're living in a house with someone who has COVID, they usually only pass it on to 15 to 30% of people in the house. That's incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the things that all the modelling uh, underestimated was how the vaccines impact transmission between two vaccinated and boosted people. So, you know, you might be dodging bullets like uh, Neo from the Matrix for, for some time. For a while, for a while. Anyway, um, onwards and upwards. And our special guest for today is Stephen Duckett from the Grattan Institute. And we were fortunate enough to have Stephen with us uh, last year uh, to help talk through the, uh, the federal budget. The budget this year has obviously come down a little bit earlier for obvious reasons, and um, we're really pleased to have uh, Stephen with us um, uh, again this year, and we'll get him on the line shortly. Um, Dr. Sharma, something's caught your eye. Yes, uh, this week, uh, the uh, really key piece of legislation has passed the, the Senate's approval, Maeve's Law, which uh, tackles mitochondrial disorder. So we'll be discussing what that is and what the implications of this law uh, is. It's a really fascinating process. It sounds like a story that's got a, a fascinating mix of um, the philosophical, the ethics, the science, and the very human-human um, attributes of, of dealing with kids. We'll get into all that very soon. Brilliant, brilliant. Speaking of mitochondria, I know you're a bit of a gym junkie, Dr. Sharma. Um, and I you wonder... might be overstating things. But, uh, <laughs> here's one of those times where the, the non-visual uh, aspects of radio are in my face. I, I wonder, uh, as, you're, as you're pumping iron, whether you've noticed um, a few of your fellows uh, around the gym um, with blue tongues. Uh, I have not. I have not seen this, uh, but I have seen these trends about meth. Is it methylene blue? Methylene blue. So for our pop goes your health segment this month, um, where we look at uh, alarming trends. Alarming might be the word in this case when you see uh, headlines like um, a fish tank cleaner being used. What? We're going to have a chat about methylene blue and how it's captured the imagination of some uh, fitness influencers online. <laughs> I'm not very trendy when it comes to my health. I stick to the basics. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. We're very pleased to uh, bring to the show Stephen Duckett again um, after being with us here last year. Stephen is the Health and Aged Care Program Director at the uh, Grattan Institute and many of you will be aware of his commentary um, from that institute. Stephen, welcome to the show. Good morning, Kent. 
really wonderful to have you um, back with us. There's a, a, a lot... Uh, a lot uh, of chatter about the budget this year, not just because of the uh, content, but because of the context. And maybe that's a good place to start. What's your initial reaction to um, a budget leading us into an election campaign? So, uh, although not formally the start of the election campaign, it was very, very clearly an election budget. Uh, obviously, the government is polling pretty poorly, and they were looking, I think, to the budget to to help them get a bit of a bounce and to help them uh, address some of the perceived uh, problems that they're facing. Yeah, yeah. And do you... It, it was being called the um, cost of living budget, I think, was the tagline, wasn't it? Yeah, so that certainly they made cost of living a centrepiece of the budget, uh, defined in an interesting way. I mean, what we're now... You know, the... So we all, anybody who's gone to fill up a, uh, their car with petrol, know that uh, what used that we're now paying hundreds of dollars to fill up the tank. Uh, but of course, that measure uh, benefits those who have bigger gas-guzzling cars. And when you look at the distribution of that measure, for example, it's uh, pro-rich. That is, yeah. richer people get more benefit from poorer people. So. Uh, it's not a targeted measure. They've, they've got to be aiming for uh, the middle ground, not the <laughs> the upper income ground. Well, in terms of you know, their aim, it seems like what well, what's what, what they tell us is that they've gone for some some big numbers. Um, I looked at their statements about the health budget specifically, and the the word record was thrown around several times. Record 132 billion in 2022, 2023, uh, increased to 140 billion in 25-26. Uh, these are big numbers, but help us make sense of it. How big are they in context of the health budget and the budget in general? So the record is a term that's able to be used almost every year, even if you do nothing. Um, because we have, uh, in the health context, we have inflation and we have uh, new technologies coming along and we have the population ageing. So all of those together mean that it's almost inevitable that you're going to spend more next year than you did last year, even if you had no policy initiatives whatsoever. So, so they're absolutely right. It is a record budget. But they're at, to, to, to claim that they've actually done anything to have an ex, uh, a record budget is, of course, misleading. The health budget, the, the Commonwealth spends about $100 billion a year on health. So it's big money in anybody's terms. Uh, and what you are then looking to is... In terms of policy initiatives, you're not looking to see a hundred thousand here or a hundred thousand there, or even a million here or a million there, because they're what are commonly called in Canberra the rats and mice—just small items that, in a sense, can be absorbed in the budget without doing anything. So you're looking for, in terms of trying to work out the priorities of a budget, you're looking to see what are the big items, the ones that are actually noticeable and require you to make a a big decision that would go to cabinet. Let's start with uh, the big ticket items, uh, Stephen. Um, primary health care. Uh, there are a number of um, uh, statements made in the budget uh, this year around that, not least of which was, you know, things like uh, 16.4 or something like that uh, million uh, to address endometriosis and a number of other issues. Endometriosis is something that we've been dealing with a bit here on radiotherapy. 
Yeah, so I, I would put that and more or less everything else uh, into the rats and mice category. Very small items of uh, very small, small numbers. When I said we spend, we spend or the Commonwealth spends $100 billion a year, I meant $100 billion each year. Hmm. Those items in the, in the budget are typically uh, uh, described as over the forward estimates, which yeah. is four years' worth of spending. So you have to divide it by four, and then you have to divide it uh, by the population, and you end up with very trivial sums of money. In primary care, the big thing was what was not in there. So over the last few years, the government has been developing a, a new primary health care strategy, uh, which the discussion paper of which was really far-sighted, I thought, and looked to a real significant, a really significant change in primary care in this country. The strategy itself was apparently released on budget night, but there was no money behind it. And, and what's important about that is that primary care of all the specialties with the possible exception of emergency, but of, with all the specialties, is the one most under pressure. New doctors, new medical graduates are not going into general practice. Um, the average take-home money from general practice is much lower uh, than from the other, the other specialties. Uh, and so there needed to be an injection of funds into primary care. The, the issue was going to be how do you put that injection in and one of the options was introduction of so-called voluntary patient enrolment. But all of these things were canvassed in advance of the budget, but not a cent was announced in the budget. Now, it may be they're holding off till the election campaign for a big unveil, but uh, who knows? What... Sorry, um, Vion. So there always seems to be this issue of workforce uh, in healthcare, and you know another part of healthcare where this uh, this has been kind of a perennial issue has been aged care, uh, very much highlighted throughout the the pandemic, where you know we've got this highly casualised workforce that we kind of fail to retain. Is that something that we've that the government has tried to address this budget? So you're absolutely right. The aged care workforce is critical. Um, we at Grattan had uh, released a report which said, amongst other things, you've got to make sure that aged care workers are properly trained and you've got to make sure they're properly uh, paid. And the budget did neither of those things. Um, there's a, a case in the Fair Work Commission uh, that the unions have put in for a 25% pay rise. Now, I'm not going to say whether I think that's the right number or not. That's the job of the Fair Work Commission. But the government should have said, we are actually going to... If whatever the Fair Work Commission decides is fair is what we are going to uh, put into our, our, our payments to residential aged care facilities and other aged care services. So they did nothing about the, um, the wage problem. They did nothing about requiring all aged care workers to have a Certificate 3, which is more or less what the industry has recommended. And they did a, another tiny bit on training and uh, clinical placements. Now, they won't, they won't hurt. In fact, they're probably good policies in and of themselves, but they don't address the real problem and they're just Band-Aids. Uh, which aren't going to, to fix the problem at all. Listening to you there, Stephen, uh, as we pass through on the aged care and the initiatives, uh, Al Albanese, the uh, leader of the ALP, in his budget response was very um, pointed in some of the initiatives there. So listening to you, are you a little bit more positive about that response? Yes, yes. So they did, they did much more. Um, uh, they, 
their their response, the the, uh, the the reply speech was much closer to what the Royal Commission recommended than the than the government's response uh, last year and uh, and earlier and and in the budget this year, and so. They haven't gone as far as we at Grattan would have liked, but they've certainly said they'll fund the the age care, the the, the fair work case, and they've uh, made a, a commitment to a minimum number of minutes of care uh, for every uh, residential age care for service and a 24-hour uh, uh, registered nurse on site for every residential age care service. So they've certainly gone uh, way further than the government has. If you've just joined us, you're on Radiotherapy with myself, uh, panel beater Dr Sharma, and our guest is uh, Stephen Duckett, the Health and Aged Care Program Director from the Grattan Institute, helping us uh, weave through the uh, recently announced budget uh, leading into our next federal election. Um, Stephen, I wonder if we maybe just turn a little bit of attention to, uh, I guess it's often the litmus test, especially around elections, and that is the health and well-being, no pun intended, of Medicare. How do you see uh, the uh, government's um, addressing of that? So um, the good news is the government has done nothing to harm it. That, that <laughs> is, um, over the course of this term, uh, while Greg Hunt has been health minister, in fact, um, there's been no undermining of Medicare that I, I would see, uh, which is not, it's in contrast to the first term of the uh, Abbott government, where they actively tried to undermine Medicare, uh, introducing co- compulsory co-payments and other things, uh, which didn't get through the Senate. So the, the first term of the current government, they, they actively tried to undermine Medicare, uh, since, in fact, Susan Lee was minister and continued on under Greg Hunt, they've uh, benign, benign interest, I suppose, is what you could describe it. No sense in my mind of undermining Medicare at all. That's always good to hear. Now, in terms of... Uh, we're sort of going to turn away from the direct provision of healthcare for a second towards medical research, something you'd think that would just be you know, an enormous amount of uh, value attributed to in, in context of COVID. And yet, um, NHMRC funding, you know, we found that there was a 1% nominal increase in funding, which... I think it's actually quite significantly below inflation. I guess yeah, the, the government would probably say that you know there's that one pot of money, and it, to some extent, research is something that has payoff in the in the medium long term. As a health economist, how do you help us you know, reconcile the value of uh, giving a lot of money to something like that in context of the national debt we have? So um, the, there are two pots of medical research money. One is the NHMRC, um, which essentially gives money for uh, on on what's called a peer review basis. That is a scientific assessment of uh, what the the grant applications are and um, whether whether they uh, look like they've been designed appropriately and so on, and whether the person doing it is competent. There's a second pot of money called the Medical Research Future Fund. Uh, which has grown dramatically over the last few years. And the government could say when you put those two funds together, there's a massive increase in funding for medical research, and that is true. The problem with the Medical Research Future Fund is it's highly politicised, and uh, it, it's, I won't say entirely on the whim of the federal minister, but it's essentially a politicised fund that's used um, not necessarily uh, for... Um, 
research that researchers would think was appropriate. Well, could you just talk to that a little bit more, Stephen? You know, this evidence-based policy framework that, um, you know, certain quarters will will want policy to be responding to is, um, and I guess you're pointing out that that's not necessarily the case here. What do you see is the tension between the political drivers and the evidence drivers at the moment? Well, uh, in the most recent round of announcements, there was a big capital announcement from the Medical Research Future Fund uh, for Western Australia. And and that, I think, was that the priority given to that was a political one. Namely, the government has to make sure it keeps uh, the seats it's got in that state. So the the fund has been used, uh, obviously, for medical research, but not but for political priorities in medical research, not... Uh, any um, broader set of priorities. Perhaps um, we could turn our mind to the C word, COVID, and uh, there are some initiatives announced in the budget that are ostensibly to um, look, be forward-looking about our, our response, uh, well, a pandemic health, public health response to COVID. How do you see that? So, the, the, again, the, the, it's, I think, missing the point. The, if, if you have any exposure to hospitals in this country, you'll know two things are happening. Still, uh, emergency departments are being overwhelmed and, and staff are just flat chat. And the other thing is that during COVID, there, we created what I call a care deficit. Elective procedures were cancelled by, by hospitals to make sure they could cope with the influx of COVID patients and uh, patients themselves decided not to go to their GP for a suspicious lump. Um, and so we've got they're what I call patient-initiated deferrals and we've got system-initiated deferrals. So we've got this backlog of care, waiting times are blowing out and so on. So I was hoping that the government might say, well, look, in the past we've been funding the state 50-50 for everything COVID-related and they've said, nah, we're moving on from that. I think they should have said, well, just for 2022 or the remainder of 2022, we are going to fund all of this COVID-related care deficit at 50-50 instead of the 45, uh, 65, uh, 55 that they would otherwise fund. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I, I guess there is some unknown about, uh, you know, the economic future in the, you know, in the current environment. Uh, and so budgeting for COVID, I guess, brings its own challenges in that respect. But we're of probably of the view, I guess, the three of us talking here right now, that health is not worth compromise, that this is uh, a national investment, not a national cost. Absolutely. So um, what we know is that uh, even in COVID, the, if, if you did the right public health response, you got the right economic response. Yeah. So, you know, that, that as, as others have said, um, you know, dead people don't go out and buy stuff. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's protecting the economy. Just uh, one last item that I um, would like to touch on, um, and perhaps I'll just direct the question to Dr. Sharma uh, in here, and it's and it's related to the couple of the mental health initiatives. Um, I've got them in front of me, and they're related to uh, support for GPs and um, access to clinical advice and support from from psychiatrists. I think this might be the small pennies you were referring to, Steve, and I think it's just six million dollars to, and it's called to enhance workforce capabilities. And there's 15 million for new MBS items to allow GPs and other providers to hold four mental health case 
conferences per calendar year. Perhaps just starting with Dr. Sharma, what's uh, as a GP, um, what's uh, what's your reaction to that? I thought I had missed something. I thought <laughs> that maybe I had missed a decimal point or a zero somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely actually couldn't believe that. The, like, you know, talk about you know, the 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 uh, was it rats and mice. <laughs> I think you said earlier, Stephen. Uh, this yeah. seems like it, we, we know how far six million goes uh, in in healthcare. It's not very far at all. And what you know, mental health is a huge issue. I live in Victoria, as you're broadcasting from, and the uh, yeah, the state government's putting in huge sums of money into mental health because it recognises the problem is so bad. And for the Commonwealth to say, no, nah, we did this last year, um, it's still being rolled out. I can understand that, but it should signal that more is needed to be done. Stephen, we've pretty much come to time, but I've, I wonder if you've got your crystal ball handy and you alluded to the fact that as we do more formally enter into the election campaign, the government may yet still um, make some announcements in the health space, the health uh, policy domain. Um, what might those things be? So uh, an enormous amount of expectation has been created in primary care. So my hope, and and the department has done a lot of work on this. The Commonwealth announced voluntary patient enrolment two budgets ago. So, you know, we're we're moving towards it. And I'm hoping that uh, the, the government does announce in the campaign something more for primary care. Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed on that front. Um, Stephen Duckett from Grattan Institute, it's been really wonderful to uh, have you spend some time with us on uh, your valuable Sunday morning. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. Bye for now. We've been speaking with uh, Stephen Duckett, who's the uh, Health and Aged Care Program Director at the Grattan Institute, um, weaving our way through the um, recently announced budget that came down last Tuesday. Um, it's, that was really interesting about the um, the, the small numbers, uh, almost almost uh, flippant or tokenistic towards GPs. There, Doctor Sharma. Yeah, and and I think the uh, as Stephen uh, had been saying with us, and also in some of his published pieces, it's really just made to kind of tick the boxes for special interest groups. Yeah, look, mental health tick. We, we've done something, and endometriosis tick, and this is yeah, mm. very much an election budget, and it's certainly filtered into health. The uh, you know the, the wise world of social media. I saw one quip that we might just uh, leave uh, the budget uh, conversation on. Somebody said they've um, they've announced just under ten million over three years. Another small small amount. Num ten million over three years for physical activity promotion, hmm. <laughs> but are encouraging people to stay in their cars by taking the petrol off. Per <laughs> <laughs> the prices of the levy off the petrol. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Dr Sharma, your eye caught the news around Maeve's Law recently. That's right, and this is actually something that had caught my eye a few times over the last 12 months. So Maeve's Law uh, is a piece of legislation that was approved by the Senate this week, and it's a proposal to legalise access to new assisted reproductive techniques. And what that means is that hopefully it will reduce and maybe even eliminate the chance of parents passing on mitochondrial diseases to their children. And the story is really fascinating, panel beta, because you know, on something that on face value should look like a fairly straightforward thing, 
there are several obstacles on the way and not necessarily ones that were, you know, done in kind of bad faith. Some really interesting, reasonable questions people had along the way, but we're kind of over at least one big hurdle now. And what was once just this kind of theoretical thing is now at the very least legal. So... There's a couple of big words already there for me. Um, mitochondrial and then mitochondrial disease. Yes. So the mitochondria are, I've always waited for a chance to say this, mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> <laughs> so look, anyone who's taken some kind of biology class will know that little trope. But basically they are these uh, tiny structures within uh, human and animal cells and their primary function is you know, creating energy, mm-hmm. I suppose we can say. And when these, um, when the mitochondria are not functioning properly, your organs don't function, you don't function. So mitochondrial diseases will, uh, when they are affecting children in an inherited way, most kids will live up till the age of 12 and that's it. And by that point, your eyes, your heart, your brain, all these organs uh, are not functioning. So it's, it's really not compatible with life. And the interesting thing about these mitochondrial disorders, and there's like you know, hundreds and hundreds of types, you uh, inherit the DNA from this from the mother. Right. So that's where this you know, a very small proportion of people will inherit this, uh, and, uh, and and kids will get quite sick. It's quite rare. About one child every week is born with a mitochondrial disorder. But and, although it's rare, it's devastating. And um, if the mother is aware that she is potentially passing it on, um, there is potentially an intervention. Is that where we're going with this? Yes, yes. So, well, this is the hope of this intervention, right? So, in theory, what well, you know, you've got... The, the genes, the DNA from the father, the DNA from the mother, and however the DNA carries this, this issue with the mitochondrial DNA. Well, geez, if we could just replace that little part of the DNA, this tiny part, a small percentage of the total DNA, and we'll come to why that's such a big deal in a moment, um, if we can just swap that bit out, well, then the child can hopefully be born without a mitochondrial disorder. And you know, again, this is one of the, the first kind of uh, cultural, ethical... Uh, uh, obstacles there were uh, an opposition people had was the fact that well are you now basically just you know having children with you know three parents so there's quite literally legislation that stopped uh, IVF from happening that involved DNA from three people this is one of the things that Maeve's law mm. um, went about uh, amending to actually allow that because advocates said well it's not like you know you've got three parents no it, this is less than one percent of a DNA for this very tiny um, you know, part, part of kind of who you are so to speak uh, just being replaced and ultimately you know a lot of people in the in the lower house and the Senate were convinced some however were not um, I'm, I'm sure um, I'm not alone in having my ears pricked by this idea of three parents Um What's the science of that and, and do you actually have any insight into the law of that? Well, the law was that it was not legal until this happened. Right. And, and this all just goes back to the inception of IVF in this country. There were a lot of concerns about the slippery slope that this is going to lead to designer babies and you can choose hair colour and, you know, and height, etc. Um, yeah, right. Some of those are not you know, quite reasonable concerns that people had, but... This is often, I think, the bigger picture of medical research, which is there's a lot of fear about slippery slopes. Mm. But when you bring it down to what it actually looks like in real life, and what, what it looks like in real life right now is people who are having children 
born with devastating, awful diseases that you know, truncate their lives to you know, the, the first decade, um, a lot of these concerns kind of evaporate. We don't need to worry about theoreticals that might happen 30 years from now. It's just about alleviating that kind of cruelty immediately. The um, just uh, just probably worth saying. So what we're dealing with something that uh, isn't widespread. We're not talking about huge numbers, but we are talking about when it occurs. It's it's fatal exactly in yeah. a very so, short time, and we're talking about children. So there's a particular sensitivity there. That, that it's absolutely the sensitivity there. And so what we're, we're seeing part of the, the reason that this has been this legislation has has passed is because without this, there's no hope. There's really no cure. So much so that the reality is mitochondrial donation, which is what the technology we're kind of talking about here, it's still, we would describe it as uh, experimental. So what this legislation does not mean is, as of tomorrow, there are going to be lots of people donating and accepting their their mitochondrial DNA and we're not going to have babies... That, that are going to be affected by this. No, it's just made that one part legal. It's still in Australia going to be occurring within the framework of uh, research and case-by-case case, uh, kind of supervision and, um, and, and, and permission is going to be granted for this. See, uh, in 2015, UK legalised this um, and you'd go, well, okay, well, seven years, gosh, well, you, you think there'd been lots of cases of mitochondrial donation that have happened that have been successful. I look pretty hard for this. There's really not much to be found. Uh, around the world, there's been details published on maybe just a, a couple of cases here and there. In fact, a lot of the mitochondrial donations that happen in the UK, um, the, the, uh, a lot of the re- details have not been publicly released just because it's such a sensitive issue. Mm. Um, you know, It'll take nothing for the media to, to turn this thing into kind of a gory story. The, the issue with mitochondrial do- uh, donation is that it makes perfect biological sense, sure, but we don't know what the long-term impacts actually are. But, of course, advocates say, well, how bad could it be? These children are dying yeah, right. by the time they're you know, 8, 10, 12. Yeah. Um, but these issues have been hotly debated, by, not just by politicians and not just by academics, but this is actually something where, uh, in Australia, the NHMRC actually held a public panel and wanted to canvas the thoughts and opinions of, uh, of Australians. And gave them information about you know the pros and cons, the 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 knowns and the unknowns about the risks and the benefits, and overwhelmingly people's response was pretty positive. That you know, well, uh, in context of the things we do and don't know, but also how severe this disease is, and as you said, the fact that it affects children, most people uh, agreed that this is absolutely something worth pursuing, but with very close supervision, in this kind of you know, research based context. Yeah. So it's not like this is going to market. Sure. Um, I I was reassuring to hear your confidence that we don't have to really be too worried about the slippery slope because, you know, to be honest, when I I hear about this and have it explained to me, I do think about genome editing and things like this and this designer babies or, you know, this um, concept of saviour siblings and and all of this sort of thing. Um, But you are speaking fairly confidently that uh, we don't need to worry too much. Well, the good thing is that we do worry about it and we do discuss right. it. Okay. Like that, that, that's what makes it, I think it's a really important discussion to have. The, the thing I liked, however, is that you know, even amongst the, the, uh, the, the, the lower house and the upper house, um, 
uh, actually saw a lot of parliamentarians uh, say that they closely considered this and they had religious ob- objections, but then they consulted, uh, you know, their uh, people from, uh, from religious figures, uh, figureheads, kind of within their the organisations, and they reflected and said thought it was okay. Mm. That's the bigger issue to me. It, it's not wrong to have fears about slippery slopes. What I'm more concerned about is can we really reflect on the here and now and actually make some progress with yeah. abortion? Actually, and, and it's just reminded me, It was was it about two years ago a um, rogue scientist in China did a little bit of um, gene splicing or something like that and and there was really significant reaction. Does, do you ring a bell or CRISPR? It, it, it does ring a bell. Um, I've got to say, I don't think there was an enormous kind of follow-up on that. But, yeah, plenty of fears any time, you know, quote-unquote yeah. rogue scientist in some other country does yeah, this stuff. Does this and, stuff. look, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think that's a really good point to make. The safety net is that we talk about it and pay attention to it. Good stuff. Thanks a lot, Dr Sharma. Um, radiotherapy, myself, Dr Sharma, and uh, panel beta. I will be back in just a moment to talk about methylene blue. Yeah, methylene blue. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. To close out the show, we've got uh, our, our our third episode of Pop Goes Your Health, where we take a look at some kind of uh, wellness trend that seems to have captured the imagination of some quarters and uh, see if there's anything to it that's worth us even bothering to give it any second thoughts. Dr. Sharma, I came across this thing just as I was doom scrolling, mm-hmm. um, finding out how the world was going to end, as we do most days. Um, I came across this trend whereby fitness uh, bros, I think, and gals, Mm -hmm. are putting this thing called methylene blue on their tongue. And the blue, it's very, (laughs) it's Smurf blue. Yes, yes, yes. I saw the photos. (laughs) And um, I, I, I didn't know methylene from my elbow as a starting point. But then I thought, okay, what's what's going on here? And and just a cursory look, I'm led to believe that methylene blue does have some uh, therapeutic qualities to it. um, But it's also something um, that you might pick up in tubs um, at your pet store to clean your fish tank, and. I'm thinking, like with any wellness trend, what's going on here? Has this caught your attention at all? I, I Yes. I, I've <laughs> come across it here and there, but I, I did not know about the fish tank cleaner uh, quality <laughs> of this there, product yeah. that where influencers are telling people to put on their tongues. Yeah. So um, it, it, the big claims are that if you apply it to your tongue, um, there's those that are up for it because it's uh, anti-aging. There are those up for it who claim it to um, positively affect your metabolism. Uh, there are those who believe that um, it will enhance your memory and your cognitive ability. These are big claims. If, if something that you can buy in the pet store would do these things. You'd, you'd think science would be all over it and, and Norman oh, Swan would be telling us about I'd, it and you'd be three, telling us yeah. about it. What's... It's, you know, for me, I hear those claims and it fits into what I always regard as the very kind of male-targeted 
um, alternative health kind of product. This kind of you'll 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 think better and smarter, and you'll be you know fitter and stronger. In fact, the, the claim that I had come across with uh, Methylene Blue was that it was a wait for it mitochondrial enhancement. We've just been speaking about mitochondria. Exactly. Yes. And as you can see, it doesn't really take much to take a few sciencey words from their you know, legitimate usage in context of illnesses and uh, flip that around into a, a health promise that we know it's probably not going to deliver. Well, that's right. And, and we're starting in the three episodes of uh, Pop Goes Your Health that we've had so far. I think we're able to start identifying some key characteristics of each. Um, I, perhaps the first one is there is some skerrick of health science to each of them. You know, there's something there, you know, whether that's the appeal to authority through um, published research or something like that, or that there is uh, there are clinical cases where whatever we're discussing, in this case, methylene blue, has been used for specific health purposes. The other characteristic that seems to come up with each of these wellness things is it comes to us via social media, um, and often the origin is somewhere in the vicinity of Silicon Valley. <laughs> oh, see, uh, that place, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, like, uh, it's a far more recent trend, right? I mean, the, the other thing is that it'll be some ancient wisdom that has been kind of rediscovered. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another one. But Silicon Valley, uh, the stuff it kind of pumps out, you can always tell it's the language to do with it, the, the, the kind of sciencey words and again very kind of male focused yeah. stuff this yep. kind of self-improvement to be the the, the the super superman the superhuman that we're trying to kind of create here um but you did say that there was a skerrick of uh kind of utility here medical utility what did you manage to find in reading what well, was the, the promise <laughs> so i did i did uh, did some homework um and I found that one of its uses is that it's um, used to treat blood disorder called, help me out here, mm-hmm. methemoglobinemia. Oh, yes. And a reputation on the back of that for actually having some kind of cognitive um, and um, mitochondrial enhancement. Mm. So... You know, it's 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 in the literature, <laughs> yep. I guess. Um, but it uh, with that homework, I, I looked at risks. You know, so what what happens if all these uh, Silicon Valley bros and girls um, start um, looking like Smurfs? There are some very significant risks. One of them um, is that uh, if you happen to be using SSRIs, mm. um, uh, then this can cause uh, serotonin toxicity. So SSRIs are the most commonly prescribed antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications there are. So a a huge proportion of population that may affect... And serotonin syndrome is quite literally lethal and can be a medical emergency. So huge concern. Gee, I wonder if the influencers are putting out those warnings when they're promoting this product. My guess is they're not. Yeah. Um, the the curious thing here, though, is that I so I, I came across it on social media, and I thought to myself, "Well, look how how widespread is this?" And you can actually go down a hashtag rabbit hole, and it's it's out and about, you know. Um, so people are using it, and it's people are posting their selfies with their blue tongues and um, and what have you in their fitness uh, active wear. Um, 
And uh, one in one news report, uh, a particular um, social media influencer whose name escapes me right now, but had almost half a million followers, for example, was um, you know promoting it to the hilt. Wow. Um, it you know it we've 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 seen during COVID. Say with ivermectin, for example, the mm. debates. Um, although that that obviously does have clinical um, application in other other quarters, um, but the readiness of people to find a magic bullet is perhaps that fourth criteria on the back of the three that I mentioned: the, the small, the science, skerrick of science, uh, the social media delivery, and the Silicon Valley source. And then the fourth, just this humanistic um, uh, uh, aspiration to find a silver bullet. You know, eat well, exercise, get some sleep, manage your stress. But no, 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 no. I want a magic bullet. I want to put methylene blue on my tongue. I want a blue tongue. Yeah, (laughs) let's do that. And and it's how do you go about, uh, you know, trying to control something like this, which is not this specialised product. Well, you know, the only way to get it is obviously not, you know, influences, but, you know, something that's widely available about, you know, fish tank cleaner, for for God's sake. (laughs) Fish tank Quite a challenge to regulate something like that once the belief is out there through influences of the community that this may do people some good. Let's wrap Pop Goes Your Health there. We're not going to give that a second thought. We're going to pass on that one. Big pass. Won't see you with methylene blue on your tongue Unless in you the gym this week. clean pool. Yeah, that's right. Get your, get your fish tank out. Hey, that's it for us on Radiotherapy. We want to thank uh, Stephen Duckett from the Grattan Institute helping us understand the budget and more specifically uh, the health items announced this week. Um, thank you, Dr. Sharma. Thank you. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.